Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 229 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Lime TV, an interview with Adina Berkowitz. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, Adina is one of the stars in the Lyme disease community, and we were anxious to get her onto our podcast. And finally, that date had arrived. And I was really looking forward to challenging Adina on a number of different issues. And I have to tell you, she was up to the task. It was a really exciting interview, and I really enjoyed challenging Adina on many different fronts. Rich, what really surprised me about Adina's Lyme journey is the fact that she talked to us about having to separate out Lyme doctors versus other specialists. When we talk on our podcast, we generally focus on people that specialize in Lyme disease, but Adina emphasized the point that we have to look for other specialists to address the other things we have going on, either as a consequence or damage from Lyme disease or other pre-existing conditions we have that were amplified once we became sick. Matt, like you, I really enjoyed the element of Adina's podcast where she talked about teasing out the symptoms and the issues that she had to deal with in addition to Lyme disease. In so many cases, folks believe that once they have a Lyme diagnosis, everything that's going on with them in their lives is related to Lyme disease. And Adina was able to tease out those elements of her illness that were related to Lyme and those elements of her illness that were not related to Lyme. And she was able to build a health team so that she could get better. And this is a wonderful model for anyone who's on a Lyme disease journey. So Matt, I'm really excited to introduce Adina Berkowitz and Lyme TV to the TIC Bootcamp community. Hey, Adina from Lyme TV, and welcome to the TIC Bootcamp podcast. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me today. I'm super excited to be here. Well, you have been somebody that we've targeted for interview for a long, long time. So it's great that we finally have uh, have an opportunity to interview you just before Christmas of uh, 2021. It's just, uh, it's like our Christmas present having you on our podcast. So thank you for taking time away from your family and all of the great work that you're doing at Lime TV to uh, meet uh, our community. So Adina, talk to us about uh, first where you are from, where are you currently living? Currently, I live in Portland, Maine. However, I am from away, as what Mainers call it, um, from originally Miami, Florida, and we have been here for about four and a half years so far. So you went from as far south as you can live in America to as far north as you can live in the U.S. Yeah, from one point of I-95 to the other. Holy cow. So, yeah, I mean, at least in New York, we generally consider people from Maine really Canadian, so it's... uh... (laughs) It's uh, it's interesting that you've you've gone so far north and uh, and not only were there huge cultural differences, but I, I guess the temperature was radically different. You went from a place where it could be as warm as you could be to a place where it can be as cold as you can be. So, um, Adina, talk to us about uh, talk to us about what your childhood was like. What was it like living in uh, Florida? Well, I was very independent as a child. I didn't have a well-structured family. I didn't have very uh, attentive parents, I would say. My parents, I guess, they divorced when I was six years old. So my mother worked a lot and she had her own health conditions and issues uh, that I really didn't understand as a child. So I had to be independent at a very young age. I had a younger brother who was three years younger than me. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2015. Uh, but as, as I was growing up, um, you know, even at 10 years old, I would help him with his homework and uh, help cook dinner and keep the house clean. So uh, I would say at a young age, I had to um, be an adult. I didn't have much of, much of a childhood. 
So you're an old soul and you were doing all the things that needed to be done to take care of yourself and your brother. And, and, and there are some virtues that come along with that. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit during, during the podcast, but so talk to us about what your educational experience was like uh, as a native uh, of Florida. Yeah. Well, I, I was always, um, I always had an aptitude for math and science and I always did well in my classes. Actually, I was a straight A student all through elementary school and uh, junior high and high school. I was a, a bit of a, a nerd. I'm, I'm a perfectionist and an overachiever. And uh, that's been, uh, you know, characteristic, I would say, you know, uh, character traits that I've had my whole entire life. So I've always done well in school. And I, at a young age, knew that I actually wanted to become a doctor. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Uh, in the fifth grade, it was something that I just knew I wanted to be. And so I kind of focused my earlier education in junior high and high school on um, taking the courses that I need to get into those those courses in college. Um, I, at a young age, I was so good at math actually that in uh, fifth grade, I was taking high school algebra. And by the time I reached high school, I had already finished all of my high school math courses. So I was taking extra science courses as electives. So you're a, you're a geeky kid who loved math and science and wanted to move into the healing professions. And um, that, of course, begs the question, at that time in your life, when you were studying math and you're studying science and you had this, this spirit of, of, of wanting to be a healer, um, did you know anything about ticks or tick diseases during, during that stage in your life? Because we do know that Florida has a, a huge problem with uh, tick diseases, um, even, even during your childhood. Was that something that came on your radar, either in your science classes or your health classes or in any of the independent work that you were doing to prepare yourself to become a healer? I had never heard of ticks or tick diseases as a child. In fact, I never heard of Lyme disease until I was diagnosed with it. So um, I, I did not know that there were uh, dangers from ticks. And I certainly didn't know uh, anything about ticks being in Florida at that time. So talk to us about how your life changed when you, when you finished your um your youthful experience in Florida and you went off to college? Well, actually I didn't go right off to college after high school. I, uh, I had worked in, in a record label industry um, in the music industry for a little bit as a, as a coordinator for a record label. So I traveled a lot and I was making a really good salary uh, for somebody being uh, so young. So in my early twenties, I was kind of focused on my work and uh, foolishly built a very large home and had a mortgage at a young age, which I would advise any young person not to do regardless of their uh, salary. And so during that time, I did end up enrolling into college. And at that time, I did not pursue a pre-med major, which I had expected to. I was more interested at that time in uh, network systems and uh, with Unix and um, operating systems. So I actually started courses for computer science and um, went through also some certifications for Microsoft to become Microsoft certified. And I was pursuing more uh, a computer science track. 
And then it wasn't until uh, much later in life when I went through a few uh, changes of careers that I ended up um, going back to school. And then I pursued, um, I, I was a multi-major. So I, I graduated with multiple BAs um, at once. I uh, graduated with a BA in international business and trade and marketing and operations management from the Florida Atlantic University. Congratulations. So let's, let's, let's walk that back a little bit because this is a really interesting path, right? So you're, you're a young child, you, um, you're a young woman with, with, um, with math and science skills. You have this, you have this goal to become a healer, uh, but you now take a different path, right? You become, you become a professional in the entertainment industry. So talk to us about how that path developed for you and how the, uh, the little girl with the strong math and science skills became a professional in the entertainment industry? Well, uh, that was actually, you know, kind of short-lived. That was only about three years of my life. And uh, again, on the side, I was, I was, had my sights on uh, focusing on network systems administration. So I, um, I was doing it more just as, as a, for a paycheck. It wasn't something that I knew I wanted to pursue later through this whole process though. Um, and, and even as a child, I always was also, um, very focused on, on volunteering with nonprofits. As a child, I volunteered in nursing homes, reading to the residents. And I would also volunteer, uh, at food banks and homeless shelters, especially during the holidays when um, when they had larger amounts of people who needed to be fed. So that was that was always something that I had passionately within me was that call to service. So through the time that I worked at the record label, I wasn't really focused on that as as a long term career trajectory. Um, I did. Uh, that that business actually that company uh, that I worked for actually uh, went out of business and I think it was like 2003. Uh, so at that time I accidentally fell into the finance industry and um, and into mortgage loan processing. I did very well with with the mortgage loan processing and um, and quickly kind of moved up the ladder of where I was at. So I started my own business. For mortgage processing, and I had uh, national um, banking and mortgage houses that contracted my corporation for compliance audits and um, and lending processing and other types of um, of professional services that my business did. So I was then in the finance industry uh, for several years, doing very well. And, uh, and then of course, when the recession of 2008 started, which actually began in 2007, <laughs> uh, the banking industry and lenders started seeing uh, the banks going bankrupt and the, and the mortgage brokers started going out of business. And those were my clients. Um, so as they were you know, like dominoes going out of business, I eventually shut my business down at the end of 2008. And that's when I returned to school. So you, you've had this very interesting career path where there were a lot of things working on you as you were working on them, right? So this, this, this little girl who, was, who wanted to be a healer, who wanted to study the human system, had this now call to service. And she also started to learn 
about different elements of the entertainment industry, which we'll talk about as we get later into your story. We learn you learn about um, the uh, about entrepreneurship and the and and you had the spirit of service from an entrepreneurial model, and now you pivoted back over to college after you learned all of those different. Uh, skills and learned so much about yourself and how you could apply these strong math and science skills. So talk to us about um, what your passion was when you were becoming this, um, you called it multi-major um, uh, Bachelor of Arts student and um, what your vision was for your future while you were, while you were a student um, uh, for the first time. I wanted to just apply what I learned in school to what I already knew as, as an entrepreneur and a business owner. Um, through all of my studies, I actually thought about how can this help me become a better business person based on what I already know and my own experiences. Uh, because I went back to school and I was a little older than the rest of the students, you know, I had, I had that experience uh, under my belt. And it, it gave me a different lens on looking at how I learned from my courses. Um, I did graduate with all of my degrees um, as an honor student. Uh, again, that comes back to being a perfectionist and an overachiever. I took six courses a semester while I worked full-time as well uh, because I wanted, uh, I, I wanted to uh, push through you know, and, and get my degree as fast as po or degrees as fast as possible. Um, through that time, I did though want to still pursue a life of service. And I started to focus my volunteerism more uh, into, into different types of nonprofits. Um, again, it was usually focused more on the underserved communities uh, is where I really had a passion for my for my volunteerism. In 2010, I volunteered uh, with the University of Miami's Project MediShare as lead logistics uh, post earthquake Haiti. At first, I was the uh, I was managing outbound logistics uh, from an airport in Miami to send all of the medical equipment and uh, like x-ray machines and um, and surgical room equipment to Port-au-Prince where the MASH hospital was being built and then I was asked to um, manage the incoming logistics inbound logistics so I you know asked, when do you need me to go? And they said in a few hours, if you're able. So I rushed home, uh, packed a duffel bag, headed back to the airport and, you know, and flew to Haiti. Um, so that was my first trip there. I was uh, lead logistics uh, for inbound logistics uh, for all of for setting up the MASH hospital. I also was trained as an emergency OR tech. So I was assisting the surgeons in the hospital. I was, I was the only non-clinical person going on medical rounds at uh, different hospitals in Port-au-Prince uh, with small teams. So I was also trained as an, uh, as an emergency um, kind of like a wound care nurse. And I was helping clean wounds from people who had amputations and things like that. So that really kind of reignited that fire of, of, of my passion always as a child of wanting to um, work in the clinical 
field as well as um, as giving back for that service. So that that was the start of that process. So or or it was the next step in that process, right? Because there is a thread that ties all of this together, Adina. I'm not really sure that it's as disjointed as uh, as perhaps my um, my questions are suggesting it is because you sort of have this thread of service that begins during childhood. You have this thread of of wanting to serve people um, who are who are um, in need, medically in need. We have this thread of um, of systems analytics and systems. Um, 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 I guess, improvement. So we, we sort of see these same threads all developing during your childhood all the way now through this time when you're in, you're in Haiti. So after you, after you finished your mission in Haiti, what was the next step in your career path? Well, I did, I did go to Haiti many times um, and over a course of a couple of years. But uh, in 2011, I was introduced to a founder of an organization, an educational nonprofit uh, in Calcutta, India, and I started um, working with them. So I was the chief financial officer for about five and a half years for a nonprofit in Calcutta, India. Uh, during that time, we also expanded our location to Pune, India, which is on the other side of of the country uh, near Mumbai. I would travel back and forth to India, but mostly I managed the teams from Miami remotely, uh, which, uh, you know, served well on managing teams now through the pandemic, right? <laughs> like <laughs> remotely. Um, I, I really loved my work. I, I worked on creating a sustainable organization and, cre and creating sustainable programs. I also worked on improving the educational programs that were already in place. And, um, and I got to meet a lot of wonderful people who I'm, who I'm still connected to and friends to this day. I, re I really did enjoy that work that I had, um, that, that work of service that I was giving. So, Nadine, it's my understanding that it's during that window of your life when you first started to now get sick and you started to develop the symptoms of what you now know to be Lyme disease. So talk to us about how your symptoms developed and how your symptoms were impacting the good work you were doing uh, for the folks in India. Yeah. So, um, you know, my... I had, I'll, I'll precede all of that with saying that I had a really bad pregnancy and I actually found out that I was pregnant while I was in India. And so um, I had some previous losses, pregnancy losses. And so while I was in India, I was being monitored for that. Had my first ultrasound. I had to get, uh, go to the hospital every couple of days to have my blood drawn to make sure that my, uh, titers were doubling that as needed to show that, uh, that, you know, the fetus was growing properly and that I wasn't having another loss. So at that time, um, it was really hot. It was really, really hot in India. It was like 114 degrees. And I was working out in slum communities doing medical rounds. And um, I decided that it was probably best uh, for my health and the health of the child to come home. Um, I, and I didn't go back to India during my pregnancy. So I had some 
autoimmune diseases that were diagnosed uh, during that time. Also, a few years before I became pregnant, I had a thyroidectomy. I had a sudden onset of Graves' disease. My thyroid grew into a really big goiter um, and caused thyroid storm. So I had an MI. I had a mild heart attack um, during in 2009. So during my pregnancy, because of all of this, I had to see a perinatologist who is a doctor who monitors the, the fetal health and, um, and of course, other specialists like a cardiologist, my endocrinologist, I had to see everybody more regularly. And they were monitoring to make sure that the child or my baby was growing healthy, because and that they were, uh, that the baby was getting enough thyroid hormone through my synthetic you know, hormones that I was taking and, and that kind of thing. So I went through having a lot of pain. I was in excruciating pain through my pregnancy for most of it. I gained an extensive amount of weight and nobody could figure out why, because I was not overeating. I gained like at one period of time, 10 pounds in two weeks. And I, and I was then told at that same time that I wasn't even eating enough calories, you know, to, to promote a healthy pregnancy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm blowing up here. Like I look like Shrek, like I'm, like I'm eating myself. So, um, it really was an unpleasant journey. I also started developing weird things that were happening to me. Um, well, not so weird, very common in pregnancy to develop depression. So I started having uh, symptoms of depression and, but I also became allergic to my hypoallergenic cat. Um, and I also became allergic to soy products, which I had never been allergic to before. So there were all these weird things that were happening. Um, and yeah, it was just a really bad pregnancy during that time. Um, I didn't really think about the other symptoms and didn't realize that they were all connected um, until my son was about two months old. So it was in February of 2014. Um, and my husband and I were going for a walk with the stroller around an area near our home in Miami that has uh, a four and a half mile walkable track around some golf courses. And so we, you know, we were just taking a stroll to go for a walk and I couldn't, I couldn't go for the walk. I had to sit down at every bench along the way. And I told him, I don't feel well. I feel like I'm encased in a cement suit. I can't move forward. We're going to have to call a taxi to come home because we, we lived a few blocks, just a couple blocks from, from the golf courses. So I was like, I, I can't make it back home. And that was the first realization that something, something was wrong. Um, and even, even, on a trip to India shortly after that, I recall telling one of my colleagues that I just didn't feel well, that I wasn't well, something was going on, that I was tired all the time. And this person said, well, you know, you're getting old. We're all getting old is probably that. And I said, no, I think something's going on. I just, I just don't know what it is yet, but you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And then of course, my symptoms progressed from there. And we could talk about that in a minute. But it was ultimately a severe health decline of why I had to resign from that position in late 2016. So Adina, let's, let's talk about what was going on in your life during that window, right? So 
Um, first of all, do you recall ever having been bitten by a tick either in Florida or or in any uh, time when, when you were traveling to Haiti or to India? No, I never saw a tick on me. But what I can tell you is that I was healthy before my pregnancy. And I was at the top of my game. I was doing spin classes between all of my classes and full-time work. Um, Muay Thai, which is, which is a mixed martial arts. Um, I enjoyed doing that to stay fit and yoga. And I was just, you know, I didn't have any cognitive issues. I, I was sharp. Everything was fine. And I became sick through my pregnancy, or at least we attributed those symptoms to, you know, ongoing, uh, autoimmune diseases that I had. Um, but I know that I got bit during my pregnancy because my son was actually born. We found out later when he was two, he was born with the exact same strains of all of my tick-borne diseases, just like a fingerprint map. So we know that now looking back that I was bitten during pregnancy, uh, but I never saw a tick on me. Well, Nardina, why do you know that you were bitten by pregnant? Actually, let me ask the question a little differently. Why do you believe that you were bitten during your pregnancy? Just because you're, your son and you have the same strains doesn't mean that you aren't harboring those strains for some longer period of time and you just pass them on to your son congenitally. It doesn't necessarily mean that you were bitten during pregnancy, right? That's correct. Uh, but, you know, I've, I had other known autoimmune diseases and um, medical issues. And I did not have those type of same clinical symptoms. And I really do not think that I had anything that was dormant because, because I think it would have been triggered. I think it would have, I think I would have had some type of symptoms based on me not being in a hundred percent health already. Uh, I don't think that uh, I, I just don't think that I but, had any type of uh, recessive or something that I was harboring and then and then it triggered. Um, I, I really did start becoming really ill during my pregnancy. So Dana, but let's focus on that a little bit, right? So because you know one of the first things that I thought of when you were sharing with us that your mom had been ill during during your youth, was that perhaps she had Lyme disease and perhaps you had received your Lyme, um, you know, your various strains of Lyme or the various microbes congenitally the same way you passed it on to your son. Um, and perhaps all of these things that you're distinguishing as pre, um, you know, pre-Lyme autoimmune um, diseases, for example, were in fact part of your Lyme journey. So talk to us about why you think uh, that perhaps, um, these previous diagnoses are not really a part of your Lyme journey? Well, um, my mom never had tick-borne diseases. Uh, unfortunately, she uh, suffered a lot from uh, bipolar disease, but also uh, mostly from substance use disorder. Uh, so she, her, her symptoms and her health issues were not from tick-borne diseases. Um, well, but let, let's, let's pause there for a second, Adina, because you may be right, you may be wrong, right? Because, and again, I don't want to challenge you on, on, on your, your family history, but if you don't mind talking about this, you know, one of the things that we keep saying, seeing pretty consistently is that people who, have, uh, who, have, who are harboring Bartonella are suffering from mental health issues, right? Uh, and we also know that the neurological changes that come along 
from other tick diseases will cause you to have mental health issues. And we know that suicide, for example, is, um, is, is, is uh, predominant in folks who have tick-borne diseases. So, you know, the other piece of this that I'd like to just sort of, uh, if you don't mind, challenge you on is just because your mom may have been using substances doesn't mean that the substance abuse was not a, an element of, of her managing her mental health and self-medicating rather than the, you know, rather than vice versa. So um, just because your mom had different symptoms doesn't mean that she wasn't suffering from tick diseases. And I know there's some research that showed that up to 60% 60 of the people who are diagnosed with mental health disorders are actually suffering from Lyme disease. That is very true. And I would, um, and I would explore that option if, if it weren't something that were, um, that were, that was genetic in my family, there's a long history of, uh, substance abuse disorders and, and mental health, um, disorders on my mother's side of the family. Luckily I didn't get past those genes. Um, but yes, um, but speaking of, you know, my brother passing in 2015, he, he did, he, he wasn't as lucky. So, um, so yeah, I, I really think it was, it's more genetic as far as from my mom's side goes and, and in her, in her disorders, um, than, than from tick-borne diseases. So let's talk about your autoimmune diseases and why you are now teasing them out from your Lyme journey. Why do you think your autoimmune diseases are not part and parcel of your tick diseases, why perhaps you may have been suffering from these tick diseases since your childhood by coming in contact with the tick? Well, the very different clinical symptoms, uh, just very much. So my onset of Graves' disease, um, I, I lost a lot of weight really quickly. It didn't matter how much I ate. I was eating like four or 5,000 calories a day and I got down to a hundred pounds. I just, you know, my metabolism was super fast and I, I didn't have the types of pains or nervous system disorders or the headaches or any of those things that I had um, that did start during my pregnancy and uh, that were later used to diagnose uh, on, my, on my clinical symptoms list that I gave to my clinician used to think about testing for Lyme disease. Um, there, were, there were just very different symptoms. Although I do believe that now um, having a predisposition to autoimmune diseases, because I do have a lot of diseases that are genetic in my family, for instance, uh, psoriasis I have. I also um, have antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a blood clotting disorder. I have, um, of course, Graves' disease. And I was also born with the hereditary BRCA2 um, genetic cancer mutation for, um, and that comes from my mom's side. So uh, the psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis comes from my dad's side. Speaking of psoriatic arthritis, it's it's actually what I first thought I had um, as well with the fatigue um, because I did start having joint pain shortly after that. And I started seeing my rheumatologist in Miami. I thought that I had an onset of psoriatic arthritis. And uh, luckily, because he's a great clinician, he ran a bunch of tests and didn't see the arthritis. He ran um, MRIs and x-rays and, and blood labs for RA and everything else, and nothing came positive. But he, he didn't say that I didn't have it. He said it's possible that 
it's an early onset and he doesn't see it yet, but he didn't give me a definitive diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis based on my clinical symptoms and family history. And that's important because had he done that, I would have continued to think that I had psoriatic arthritis and never gone on to try to investigate why my clinical symptoms were continuing to happen. I would have never possibly found out that I had Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. So um, I think that, you know, that that was a benefit in my case. Oh, for sure. I mean, having the blessing of a really good doctor, a really good clinician allowed you to continue to go on your diagnostic journey and you didn't settle on something that you didn't have. Right. So it seems to me that you're beginning to sort of build out this, uh, this, I guess, environment that you were, um, that you were immunocompromised and you came in contact with the tick, right? So you, you had, you had a predisposition to having a compromised immune system. And then when you came in contact with the tick, it was, uh, it was, a, a, a battle that your body wasn't prepared to fight. Exactly. And my clinical decline happened fairly rapidly. I, by the time I was diagnosed and I had Lyme disease diagnosed in a spinal fluid. So I had Lyme encephalitis um, and I had other tick-borne diseases that weren't tested for at that time. But by the time that I had that spinal tap, which was in the fall of 2015 and one month away from also a uh, one month after me being diagnosed finally with the hereditary BRCA2 cancer mutation. I was the first in my family to test for it. So all of this kind of happened together at the same time, which also plays another role in my story. Um, But by the time I was diagnosed with the spinal fluid having Borrelia bacteria in it, I couldn't recognize my own car. I had such cognitive decline that I didn't know what day it was. I had massive time distortion. I didn't know something happened today, yesterday, or three months ago. I couldn't remember if I brushed my teeth. I was asking my husband a hundred times a day if I had brushed my teeth already, and then didn't remember that I asked him. So I was continuously asking him. I would make coffee with the coffee cup, not under the maker or upside down, like weird things were happening. And at that time, I was also preparing to, I was applying to grad school um, for a master in nonprofit leadership. And I couldn't focus on the application. I couldn't read anything. I was reading sentences eight, nine, 10, 15 times to try to absorb it. And it was so frustrating because I just, I was like, what, what's happening to me? Is it because I'm tired? Is it because I'm a new mom? And And I recall leaving a store and looking for my car in the parking lot. I knew where I parked my car. And I went up to this car to enter the car and said, this is not my car. And I probably spent a good 10 minutes going around this parking lot looking for my car and beeping, you know, my alarm to try to find where it was just to find out that that first car that I tried to enter was my car the whole time. And I didn't recognize it. And I got into the car and I just broke down crying. And I said, what is happening to me? Because it, that was like the high point of realizing 
there's something going on. I, I need to go back to my doctors to figure this out because I was having really bad migraines and I was wondering, one of my grandparents passed away from a brain tumor. So I was like wondering, do I have a brain tumor? What What is happening to me right now? So then I, before Matt takes you on the uh, diagnostic journey, I, I want to walk back a little bit further. And again, th thank you for being so open and vulnerable and honest. Um, uh, but I'd like to explore one other topic with you. You said that you were having some trouble. Um, you were having some trouble getting pregnant or you were, you were having some trouble maintaining your pregnancies. And if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that issue, because we know that's a big issue in the Lyme community. And it's something that people really don't like to talk about. But uh, many people uh, with Lyme disease cannot carry um, children, right? That the, that the, that the, uh, their Lyme disease causes them to, um, you know, lose their, lose their children. And I, we had one example here in, in our community where we had a young woman who had lost um, four or five different, no, she miscarried four or five different times. And somebody actually recommended to her that she be tested for Lyme disease. And sure enough, she did have Lyme, got treated for Lyme and has now since had, I think, two or three children since then. So it, that seems to be a pretty common phenomenon, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about it. So um, how do you know that you weren't, uh, you weren't harboring the Lyme disease when you were going through the, the, that part of your journey where you were miscarrying? Well, I do know that the tests are poor, right? Um, and um, looking back through several of my tests with my clinicians, I do know that at one point we visited IVF and I'll come back to why we were going to IVF, although we never used them. Um, they did run a, a lot of panels to see why I, I was having trouble. And um, we didn't realize at the time because they only discussed what was positive, uh, but they had run a, a Lyme disease panel and it was negative at that time. Um, so what's attributed to my, to my persistent miscarriages was actually antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a blood clotting disorder, which is, is one of the reasons also that I was tested for that. So they did run several panels to try to investigate why I was having all the losses. I also had an ectopic pregnancy uh, in 2008. So I had to um, have emergency surgery for that and, um, and was in the hospital for a few days on mexitrexate. Um, and before the surgery, they had to, um, they had to remove the ectopic pregnancy. And then because of that, uh, when we were trying to conceive in, in 2012, after other losses, um, my OBGYN decided to run a test to see if there was any scar tissue in, in that tube. And there was, and we had to then remove the tube uh, to facilitate a healthy pregnancy because they said that um, there was some, there was some buildup that would cause, be caused by that scar tissue and that it could be a 50% fatality to any fetus going forward. So we removed the tube I was directed, or before I removed the tube, we were directed to visit IVF uh, just to see what that would look like if we had trouble conceiving after um, after the surgery. And so they ran a panel of tests, and um, and that's when I was diagnosed with antiphospholipid syndrome, which made actually a lot of sense because my mother had a stroke, her mother had a stroke, her her mother's mother had a stroke. So there's you know also strokes that run in the family. So at that time, we know that the losses were due to that uh, blood clotting disorder. And I'm on blood thinners daily now for that. 
So, Dana, you know, I, I think this is your story is just a really powerful story on so many different levels because it allows us to explore so many different pieces of a Lyme journey, right? And one of the things that we we have observed through you know our past podcast guests is that every single person has a different presentation when they have Lyme disease, and you're just sort of building out one of the reasons why your presentation, for example, would be different than Matt's presentation, right? Because you had a genetic predisposition that was very different than mats would be, for example. So your presentation would be very different, right? So that's why it's impossible to look for the thing to get you better from Lyme disease because each one of us comes to this journey with a very different genetic predisposition. Each one of us comes to this journey with a very different immune uh, system. And of course, each one of us comes to, a, to this journey with a very different set of, of microbes that are being spit into us. And when you put all of those permutations together, it's impossible to equate one to another, right? So um, talk to us about the testing before, before I let Matt spend some time with you on the testing. Let's, let's explore testing a little bit because you said you were tested for Lyme disease when you were going through the, through the miscarriage journey. Um, and were the tests that they were giving you at that time testing you for Lyme disease, and again, I know you were unaware of them, but you've now looked back at them, the same tests that were ultimately used to diagnose you with Lyme disease, because you said that you were, you were initially diagnosed during this part of your journey through a spinal tap and spinal fluid. So they didn't, of course, initially test you through, through uh, spinal fluid. So were there some differences in the testing? And, and perhaps could that be the reason why you weren't diagnosed early on because of the flaws in the testing rather than not having Lyme disease at that stage? Uh, it is possible. Um, and, and, and I just want to step back a second too, because you're right. It, it host immunity is very important in this big puzzle of a picture. Um, and of course, uh, also the strains of Borrelia, cause we know there's many different strain types, which can cause different symptom sets and, uh, you know, different levels of, um, of disease as far as severity. Uh, and also of course comes into play co-infections and other tick diseases and other infectious disease types. So all of those things do uh, play a role in, in how cases are very different. Um, so I, again, going back, I'd never had heard of Lyme disease and did not know that I was tested for it during IVF at the time. I only was going through those tests when, um, when I moved to Maine and because I was gathering all of my medical history files to bring with me up here uh, for my new doctors. And that's the only reason I even noticed that uh, they had tested also for a Western blot on all of those labs because um, because I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for anything. I was just trying to bring the initial test for when I was going to be set up with a hematologist here in Maine. Um, of course, I was seeing a hematologist in Florida and they you have with antiphospholipid syndrome, it takes multiple tests for that diagnosis. So I was gathering all of that stuff together. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same. They did run a Western blot. I was referred to the neurologist in Miami based off of what my primary care had tested. So through the process of me trying to figure out what was wrong, I only went to see two doctors. So it was my rheumatologist and my primary care physician. And I initially went to my primary care asking her, if I had a vitamin deficiency because of the fatigue and I asked her to run a vitamin panel. Um, and of course that was fine. Even my vitamin D was fine. Everything was fine. And so because of that, and because of um, the rheumatology test being normal, I assumed 
that it was an early onset of psoriatic arthritis and that, you know, I'm just going to wait until it gets worse. And then I'll go back to the doctor and he's going to run some more tests and see then that it comes up in the scans. Um, so it was about a year and a half later uh, that I went back to the doctor. So during this time, I'm having really bad clinical decline and and didn't think, of course, still didn't at the time know about ticks or the dangers of ticks, but I was attributing everything to what I thought was a clinical diagnosis that I hadn't yet been given, but still decided to go back to the doctors and, and explore. So I made an appointment with my rheumatologist and with my uh, primary care one day apart. Um, I saw my primary care first. My rheumatologist told me to keep a symptoms journal of everything that was happening. He also asked me to try, you know, 30 days of an anti-inflammatory. If it didn't help, stop taking it. So it didn't help. So I stopped taking it. Um, but I took that, that journal with me to my primary care and it was actually on my phone and I was tracking weird symptoms and things that would happen and that I noticed frequently. And I went back to her and I said, did you happen to test for vitamin B because my fatigue is getting so much worse. And I just, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm heading back to rheumatology tomorrow. And, you know, all these other things are happening to me. And she said, well, what are those other things? And I, and I told her, and she said, you know what, you sound like my daughter and she has Lyme disease. So I want to test you. And this is a, a primary care in Miami. So, you know, uh, very, um, unlikely that this is going to be the same experience with a lot of patients in Miami, but she tested me for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and I knew RA was already negative because rheumatology tested me for it, but she tested for RA, lupus, and Lyme and said those three things should always be tested together because they have the same types of clinical symptoms. So she called me a few days later and said, lupus was normal, RA was normal, but I did have a couple titers on my line test. Um, it wasn't positive, it wasn't CDC positive, but because of that and because of my headaches, my migraines, my clinical decline, she's sending me to neurology and neurology did the spinal and that was my first positive test. Um, of course, later it, I had many Western blots that weren't positive even after a positive spinal, which is, which is important to note because patients could have neurological manifestation and they could have neural neural Lyme. And as we know, Lyme is not, the bacteria is not a, a serum bacteria, right? And you need a certain amount in a serum sample to trigger a positive test. We also know that the tests are created out of one specific strain out of New York, and there's many different strains. And the further you go away from that, you know, um, epicenter from where that, that strain is typically located, you can have, um, you know, lower sensitivity and specificity on the test. So I had multiple, uh, negative Western blots after that. Um, I did have some positive as well later on too, but it was just, it was just really odd to know that I had neuroline. It was definitely in my spinal fluid, twice the amount that was needed to trigger the titer. So it, it, it was a lot in my spinal fluid and that, um, based on serum tests, you know, nobody would have ever known that I had Lyme disease. So Dina, first I want to point out you know, how I think fortunate you were, and it's odd to say it this way, that your primary care physician thought of Lyme disease, especially in Florida, right? That's not very common. 
And even though you weren't positive, it was still suggested to you by your primary care physician, go to a neurologist because it still could be on the table. Again, very uncommon with a negative test, only a few titers. And then thankfully your neurologist did a spinal tap because all of your lab work, your blood work was showing negative. You had severe neurological Lyme disease, but yet your blood work was showing negative. And we get this question all the time. My symptoms are so severe. I'm so neurologically impaired. My test should be showing positive, but you're proof that that's not the case. You can be very, very neurologically sick from Lyme disease and still test negative with a blood, blood test. And your spinal, your spinal tap showed that, right? And you had double the, the levels of the bacteria in your body to be positive for your spinal tap. So I think it's a really important piece to emphasize here on this podcast. So thankfully you had this diagnosis through the spinal tap. You're treating with a neurologist now. Do you decide to treat Lyme disease through the neurologist or do you go to another doctor to develop a treatment plan? Actually, that neurologist looked at my test and said, I don't know anything about Lyme disease. There was only a paragraph in my medical school books, but I can prescribe you something for your headaches. So she actually never tested me and had she, uh, or treated me, I should say, had she treated me at that point in time, I probably wouldn't be disabled right now because although I don't have tick diseases anymore, I do have newly triggered autoimmune diseases. And that's, you know, kind of where um, I think that my autoimmunity comes into play because I have continuing problems and with my nervous system and I need ongoing weekly infusions for the rest of my life. I'm using a mobility scooter to go anything a block away because I, I can't stand up. I can walk, I'm not paralyzed, but I, I can't, I don't have the stamina, right? And I don't have the endurance. So I, I need a mobility scooter to go a block. And I think that if she had just looked online, right? And, and, and I hate to use these words, it's a little harsh, but had done her job um, and, and investigated a little bit uh, of what she needed to do and know that the recommended course of neurological Lyme is ceftriaxone, uh, you know, that we could have started my treatment at that point in time. Uh, so this was in the fall of 2015, um, because she didn't know what to do according to her. And because she didn't initiate treatment at that point in time, I started looking for a doctor who could treat me. Now, my primary care physician did put me on oral doxy and she did give me multiple rounds. So I was on for a few months, uh, but it wasn't helping and I was continuing to decline. So I did find a doctor in Florida who was considered Lyme literate. And I would also, uh, you know, note that not all Lyme literate doctors are equal. <laughs> so there's that as well. But um, so this doctor was considered Lyme literate uh, and was continuing to treat me on um, oral doxy and, and it took about it took almost about a year before this doctor attempted to treat me with a PIC line and IV ceftriaxone. So it was in 2016, in October, I remember, October of 2016, that I was inserted with a PIC line and finally, uh, you know, attempted to, uh, to have treatment with ceftriaxone or brand name Rocephin. And then we realized quickly that I was allergic to it. Although I had gone to the allergist to be cleared ahead of time, they did a skin test for it. I passed the skin test. I ended up having an allergic reaction. They had to pull my pick line. And it wasn't until 
January of 2018, so another year and a half going by uh, before I could get the proper treatment. And by that time we were in Maine, I was seeing um, a neurologist who specialized in infectious diseases and they worked with my primary care and my allergist in Maine with the hospital system here to get me admitted into ICU at, um, at Maine Med Hospital System. And I was uh, at the hospital in ICU for four days getting um, the treatment that I needed. They had to do what's called a desensitizing method to desensitize me to the drug so I could take the Rocephin. And, and that was the beginning of me truly being treated because the oral meds over a long course of time did not help me whatsoever. Uh, that doctor also uh, you know, gave me the oral meds. Um, he tested for Ehrlichia. That was it. I, I was positive for Ehrlichia. Ehrlichia was kind of treated fast, but not the line. Um, so I was on these oral medications. I also tried some herbal remedies that went along with it. Nothing helped me until I was on the IV doc, um, Rocephin. Also uh, to know it was it until that I was seeing that infectious disease neurologist after I moved up to Maine, um, that I was tested for all the other tick diseases. And I ended up in total um, being positive with Lyme or Lichia, which I knew from Florida. Um, I had Babesia um, and these are CDC positive tests. Um, I also had two strains of Bartonella and I also had high titers to Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So I had to have been bitten by two different ticks uh, to have that uh, because of the, the, you know, the different species of, of what they spread. So, um, so I was really, really sick. And I also contracted chikungunya in 2017, which is uh, a mosquito borne vector borne disease. So I had seven infectious agents at one time. And I was terribly sick. And as we know, these diseases can trigger, you know, um, post immune or post treatment, uh, long haul symptoms, like we see in COVID, right? Like you have this uh, immunity triggers. And so I have just never been able to recover. Although those diseases are now treated, I know they're treated. Um, by the time I had the pick line and went into the hospital uh, for, for the desensitizing method in ICU, I was having seizures at that point. So I had continued to decline all this time while on oral meds until I got onto the IV antibiotic. And of course, oral meds and, and the other medications for Mobesia during that process as well in 2018. It wasn't until then that I got you know, successfully treated. Um, I don't have those clinical symptoms anymore. I am a lot better than I was, but I do have damage to my body and to my systems that will never go uh, away. So Adina, I just want to highlight a couple of things you, you pointed out here that are really powerful, I believe. So the first thing I just want to comment on is that you mentioned that you had Lyme or Lichia, Babesia, two strains of Bartonella and likely Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But we've learned, you know, and we just recently posted about this from an article we read, that there are likely many, many other tick-borne illnesses that we don't even know about, that we can't even test for, never mind identify what these are under a microscope. So who knows what else you were sick with from various tick bites throughout your, your life? Exactly. And that is so true because, you know, we, we seem to get, um, you know, some tick diseases are fairly recent. They're just fairly recently discovered and they're 
there are 20 known tick-borne diseases right now in the United States. Um, and there's a variety of tick-borne diseases in other nations and uh, that are also discovered uh, different strains. Like there's in Africa, uh, in Botswana, elephants are, you know, get Ehrlichia, just a little different strain than what humans get here. So we know about these diseases. And of course, there could be a plethora of other diseases that are unknown. We don't, we don't know about them. Um, of course, because they're not discovered, we don't have tests for them. There could be making people chronically sick and we don't even know that yet. So it's very possible uh, that tick-borne disease patients and, and other patients as well are infected with unknown tick-borne diseases or other vector-borne diseases. So I'm also gonna go way back to the point of when you first got diagnosed by your neurologist, because I think you made a really powerful observation there. And I agree with your, your conclusion. And I went through a very similar experience where when I was first diagnosed by an ER doctor, they basically said, follow up with an infectious disease doctor, get it, you know, you probably need IV antibiotics, but you know, it's going to take some time. So it was, it would have been months before I can get into an infectious disease doctor. Thankfully, we had a neurologist locally who was, was friends with a family member and agreed to get me in immediately. And he disagreed with the R doctor and said, no, no, you need IV antibiotics. I am not very familiar with Lyme, but from what I'm reading, you clearly have neurological Lyme disease and you need IV antibiotics as soon as possible because the oral antibiotics will not be as effective to treat your neurological symptoms. And your observation was if your neurologist did what mine did, he could have put you on those antibiotics much sooner and possibly prevented some of the damage you're now experiencing today, correct? That is absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, I did see another neurologist uh, at University of Miami who said that he didn't know anything about Lyme. The only thing he could do was test me for small fiber neuropathy. But at that point, um, he didn't think that um, anything would show up in those biopsies. Uh, but now I do have you know, biopsies that show damage to my small fiber nerves. Um, I don't think that they would have come positive then. Um, I think that it's important, first of all, clinical education is lacking, right? <laughs> um, it's severely lacking. And I do think it is important that all medical students know about the dangers of tick diseases, know the variety of clinical presentations across all of you know the pathogens that ticks could spread, um, know the difference between early and late stage uh, clinical manifestations. Uh, so all of these things at a basic level even, so they can, so they can refer out if they don't understand how to treat. Um, when I was in the hospital in Miami after the spinal tap, before the test came back positive, infectious disease did come to my room and ask me if I had traveled to New England at all, if I had gone camping and I had said, no, I was, I was, you know, at that point in time, I wasn't traveling, although I traveled extensively in my life. I've been to all seven continents. Um, and so we've, we've done a lot of traveling, but I had it at that time, especially during my, like, this is after my pregnancy, right? In fact, my son was a year and a half old when I got my first final, my first final tap. So I told him that we hadn't been traveling. We hadn't been to the Northeast camping. And he said, then, you know, you don't have Lyme. Don't worry about it. There's no way that you can have Lyme disease. And this is a Miami infectious disease doctor. I did go back to his office with positive tests in hand. Um, I did want to, I was, you know, all ready to advocate and say, excuse my language, 
you're an idiot. Um, and here's the positive test and here's all the information that, um, that you need to understand. But he humbled me before I got to call him that name. And he thanked me for coming by his office and letting him know that he was wrong and, um, and to give him that information and ask me if I would, uh, you know, keep in touch on my journey to let him know how I was doing. So, um, you know, sometimes I think it just takes a little bit of education. You, in your case, obviously, were very lucky. Um, I, I wish that more neurologists understood that, or more doctors anyways, if you're presenting with neurological complications, that, you know, IV medication is most likely needed. Um, when I first moved to Maine, even the primary care doctor's office here looked at my files when I was getting established with new doctors, and they said, they treated you with oral doxy when you had a positive spinal. That's absurd. You need IV antibiotics. And I said, yes, thank you. You know this. That's amazing to hear this from a doctor. Thank you so much. It was, it was very refreshing. Um, although there's still a lot of, uh, you know, misconceptions and a lack of clinical education in the Northeast, um, there's, there's more, it's more known about uh, than in Florida. So Dina, give us an idea time-wise. So you got diagnosed, you then were put on oral doxy for quite a while before you got the first pick line put in and had your allergic reaction. What was the time frame between diagnosis and the first pick line that you had to have removed from the allergic reaction? A year, one year. And then from there, you had to go back on oral antibiotics until you finally went to Maine with your infectious disease neurologist who helped you with this, I guess, desensitizing process to be able to handle the ceftriaxone for the IV antibiotics. And how long was that from the initial diagnosis now? From the initial diagnosis, it was um, two and a half years. So you were, you were diagnosed for two and a half years with severe neurological symptoms related to a tick-borne illness, Lyme disease, and others. And you were not getting better on oral antibiotics, and they let you suffer for two and a half years before you got proper treatment. Exactly. Talk to us about before you moved to Maine and saw this doctor who helped you with desensitizing and get on the rocephin or the ceftriaxone properly. Were you getting any better? Was the oral antibiotics helping at all? Not at all. Not at all. And, um, you know, again, I was just continuing on this decline. I was diagnosed in the fall of 2015. In 2016, I uh, at first had uh, purchased a walker uh, to use. And then, uh, then we got a mobility scooter I needed to start using in 2016. Um, in 2017, we were traveling uh, in Asia and I had my first seizure in a subway station <laughs> in Singapore. Um, and I was walking like I had muscular dystrophy. Uh, it was at this time that I started turning the camera on myself and filming myself with these clinical symptoms so I could show the doctors what was happening when I wasn't in their office. And, um, and yeah, it, it was just, it was the start. It was the start of a journey and the start of Line TV, which I didn't even know at the time, but um, but yeah, it, it took a long time and, and they just let me decline basically because of, because of lack of education, really. It wasn't until, until I moved to the Northeast and got competent uh, medical care that I was, you know, treated su successfully. 
So Adina, talk to us about, you know, your husband and your family. What were their observations over this two and a half year window before you finally got proper treatment? Were they encouraging you to see other doctors? Were they getting frustrated with you? How, you know, this must've been a really difficult two and a half year window for you while you were treating on oral antibiotics and not getting any better. My husband is brilliant. First of all, let me say he has a PhD in historic epidemiology. He actually serves as my TV's director of science. Um, he was always looking up and researching clinical and uh, information. He was uh, printing out uh, robust peer-reviewed research to bring to the doctors to educate them as well with me. He was always in my corner. He you know, he would, he would come with me at the worst of my cognitive decline, because I couldn't always remember things to tell my clinician. So he was there with me at my appointments. Um, I don't think he was ever frustrated with me personally, but definitely with the lack of clinical education that wasn't helping me get better. Um, we were definitely uh, thrown in to this journey of tick-borne diseases, uh, never knowing that ticks were dangerous and, um, and just coming to understand that there is a schism in the medical community uh, about tick-borne diseases and how, um, you know, on a different level that it is so polarized and we, we had no idea. So he helped navigate through that system. For my son, um, my heart was broken. When, when, he was, when he was tested for tick-borne diseases, he was complaining that his legs hurt. So we went ahead and tested him and he was CDC positive on all the same exact strains of mine. He's, he's healthy, luckily he's been su successfully treated by an infectious disease uh, pediatric doctor that specializes in tick-borne diseases in Connecticut. Um, so he was uh, treated for about a year on, on medication and he's healthy. He has no tick disease titers anymore. We, we monitored that and, and even tested him six months and a year after treatment. He's well, thankfully not as many children are as lucky. Um, but for him, I would say that he's lost a mother that he could have had. I don't have the stamina or the energy to, um, be the mother that I really want to be. I also have hyperacusis and tinnitus, like sound sensitivity is one of the things that came out of tick-borne diseases for me. Um, so having a, you know, a child who's very talkative and brilliant as well, um, it, it makes it very hard, uh, you know, to spend a lot of time with him. So it's just hard. It's become hard on my family because they're my caregivers now, you know, my husband, was thrown into being a caregiver at such a young age where we, we say we're too young for this, right? Like, of course I didn't, I was lucky that I didn't have chronic illness in my teens or my twenties or as a young child, um, I got sick in my, in my late thirties. And so all of this, um, I'm grateful for that, but all of this has been difficult on my family because it's not what we expected and of our lives and the journey that we wanted. Um, before I got sick and I was applying for grad school, my, my dream was to work, um, you know, for project management and logistics on the ground in the field for Doctors Without Borders. Like that was my goal. We were, we were going to travel around the world. world. He, he was able to work, you know, remotely or he was going to retire early so we could travel and I could pursue 
my career dreams and goals of, you know, working with international nonprofits on the ground without having to fly back and forth um, from the U.S. So yeah, it, it definitely changed our lives. And but he's always been supportive, um, and he's always been very patient. And he is the best caregiver that anyone could ask for. And I'm very grateful for him. Very nurturing and very patient. Adina, although the situation is horrible and a lot of it probably could have been avoided for almost all of us, right? I mean, if we just knew about Lyme disease, if we took better precautions to not get bit, or if we had early detection, we probably wouldn't be dealing with the long-term consequences we are today. But you didn't let that keep you down. And you went on and you're running Lyme TV, and we're going to get to that in a bit and talk about how you are just helping so many people worldwide now. And that we're really excited to share with share that with the with the listeners in a little bit. But I do want to bounce back a little bit because now, so you're in Maine, you're treating with the infectious disease doctor, who's also this neurologist, and you desensitize and you're treating with, with this IV recephin or ceftriaxone, which is, I think, the generic name for it. Talk to us about how that actually started to help you. Well, you know, there's this term, right? Post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And so um, it's kind of a vague term because it could mean uh, patients who are already successfully treated, but still have clinical symptoms. And that could be due obviously to damage or secondary diseases. Um, It could be because the patient's not yet treated and their clinical symptoms are ongoing. So we were kind of monitoring to see how long it would take for my symptoms to go away. And, um, and as the neurologist mentioned that it's possible that I could get better and then later relapse. So we were definitely monitoring that along the way. And it took me about, I was on three months of antibiotics and a year of oral meds and uh, anti-malarials for the Babesia. And it took about six to eight months for me to really start feeling better. On, on those treatments. So we weren't yet sure if the medications were working up until that point. And I don't think that I got sicker while I was on the medication, um, on the IV medication. However, I, uh, I do recall just being worried if it, if it was going to work or not in my case, because by that time I had declined so much and it had been so long since I had been diagnosed. Talk to us just to recap, but you were on how many months of IV antibiotics? I was on 90 days, actually a very short course, you know, for, for some people, um, because I know that some people treat with it for much, much longer, but it took 90 days of that plus, um, concurrently and, and then going further again, after my IV had stopped, I was on other types of combination drugs of oral medication, like uh, Malarone and Mepron uh, for Babesia and other types of, of other medications. So do, do you think that the three months of antibiotics that you were on through the IV do you think that they were really a game changer in your healing? You know, absolutely. I was having uh you know, muscle jerks and, and involuntary twitches, um, full body spasms, hand tremors. I, I, you know, during this process, I also had to get a, a shower chair, <laughs> you know, to sit down in the shower while I was bathing myself. Um, and, and I still occasionally still need, cause I had dysautonomia, but, um, but much, I was in much worse shape then. I, Again, I didn't know 
if something happened today, yesterday, or a few months ago, the time distortion um, was pretty prevalent. I also had phantom smells. Like initially, I would smell cedar chips, um, or um, and then it and then it went from a sweet smell to a a really bad smell. I then started smelling cigarette smoke. Um, and those, those kind of things I no longer have anymore. I, I would have regular daily severe migraines. Um, and I don't have those kind of things anymore. So I, I know that the neural Lyme has been su successfully treated because of those severe clinical symptoms that I had. They're gone. I no longer have those. And talk to us about specifically what other medications you took to address the various other co-infections. So you I think you kind of touched on it twice, but if you can give us a little more detail, what did you do specifically to treat the Babesia? Was there anything specific for the Bartonella? If you can kind of help us narrow down what treatments were targeting what pathogens. You know, I don't remember all of them because there were so many, but I think that I was on, um, I know I was on Mepron and Malarone. And I also was on, um, oof, you know, I, I don't know what all the rest of the oral meds were. Uh, there were just so many of them. There were, it, there was a large combination of drugs. I think, you know, I, I, I'm sure that in the neurologist's clinical experience, um, you know, she, she knew what to prescribe, um, but there was such a large combination that um, some doctors may just prescribe one or two of them. And she just kind of did this large combo, but I'm, but it helped whatever, uh, whatever it was. I, I want to say also, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't no, remember what. No, but were. I think, I think even at, at its core, the fact that you were taking the rocephin for this broad spectrum IV antibiotic, which can address Lyme and many of the co-infections, but we know that Babesia is different and we need a different treatment. So you use the Mepron and the Malarone for the Babesia. Those two together are really the ones you punch you probably needed to get your body restarted. Absolutely. And I'm grateful for those drugs and for that neurologist. So you, you mentioned you were on the IV antibiotics for 90 days. Were you on Mepron and Malarone in parallel or were they done you know, sequentially after the, the IV treatment? Everything was done in parallel and, um, and it continued after the IV treatment. So um, the other combination of drugs were long-term uh, for what a, you know, a, a typical clinician would consider. Um, so I was on those other drugs long-term. Um, the shortest part of that path for me, that treatment path was the Cetriaxone for 90 days, plus, plus the time that I had uh, in ICU when they were desensitizing. So it was really 94 days. So the ceftriaxone, when you were done with the 90 days, talk to us about the symptom improvement. So is that when you your phantom smells were gone, your time distortion was gone, your migraines were gone, that all, all those symptoms subsided after the IV? It took a while. It took some months, uh, for everything to, uh, to slowly kind of recede. Um, I also had uh, you know, other symptoms like, you know, Bartonella people say brings rage, right? Like there were times that I would get so angry over really nothing. And, um, and you know, that took a while too, but over time, all these things did subside. It wasn't immediately, it took about six to eight months for these clinical symptoms to, for us to really notice that I was improving.
it really took six to eight months for you to even see the progress. Right. And how long were you on the other medications beyond the IV for? So you mentioned it was more long-term, but give us an idea. Is that a year, two years? There were about a year, almost a year. So six to eight months in, you're realizing, wow, this is actually working. I'm starting to feel better. And then we're talking about now a year. So another, you know, four to six months later, after you started to see the progress, you stopped treating with these other drugs like the Mepron and the Malarone to treat the other various co-infections. How are you feeling at the end of the one-year period? I felt a lot better, although I still have, as I mentioned, damage to my body and other secondary diseases that are now triggered. So I'm dealing with those clinical symptoms in decline. Um, I have been diagnosed with CIDP, which is a chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, which is a demyelination of the large motor nerves. Uh, I also have small fiber neuropathy, which uh, really they don't demyelinate because they don't have myelin, but there's damage to those nerves. Um, And that could manifest on its own as having um, dysautonomia. Um, There was a study published in February 2019 by Dr. Peter Novak at Harvard um, on the manifestation of small fiber neuropathy as dysautonomia in in post-treatment Lyme disease patients. Um, So there is research on this. Um, So I've been diagnosed also with dysautonomia. So there's three uh, basically degenerating or degenerative nervous system disorders that I'm having to take IVIG for on a weekly basis. Um, we've tried, uh, I've been off of IVIG, IVIG uh, a couple different times and I've declined through the process. So now we know that I'm going to um, need to remain on it. And, um, but those symptoms are different than the other ones. So although those were gone, I still wasn't well. I wasn't well when I knew my tick diseases were gone when those very, those very specific symptom sets subsided and I did improve my cognitive um, issues improved. Um, I still sometimes have word recollection issues. I still sometimes, um, you know, may forget something minor, but I remember if something happened, we used to travel and I would I would, it was like, it was almost like um, my short-term memory wasn't converting to long-term memory. So we had traveled to places that I have no recollection at all of being in that place. And now I remember, I know what day it is. I know what I ate for breakfast this morning. I know if I brush my teeth. So, um, you know, those things have certainly improved, but I am not well by any means. I still have a lot of ongoing health issues. So when did the symptoms of these three degenerative nervous system disorders pop up? Did they pop up while you were treating? And how do you, how are you able to identify those symptom sets versus the symptom sets that were correlated to your tick-borne illnesses? Yeah. So it was uh, the same neurologist who treated me, um, who got me into ICU in 2018. It was just a couple months before, like a month or two before that I was diagnosed with CIDP through a series of EMGs and other neurological tests. Um, and then I was also, um, I was also referred to at the same time, by a cardiologist in Maine, um, because I was having some cardiac issues. Um, they ran a bunch of Holter tests. Um, in December of 2017, 
as I was waiting to go into ICU. I also was uh, back and forth into the ER because I was having a lot of heart issues and I was having abnormal EKGs that were recorded in the operating, um, in the emergency room. Um, and they suggested uh, that I see a cardiologist and the cardiologist ran a bunch of tests and suggested that I uh, go to um, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston that they have a dysautonomic center. And so, I was referred to go there and it took about a year to be seen. Um, at that point in time, I was tested for autonomic dysfunction through a series of other tests, um, including small fiber uh, biopsies, nerve biopsies, tilt tables, the whole works, and was diagnosed with uh, dysautonomy in 2018. So CIDP came at the end of 2017. Later 2018, I was diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy uh, and dysautonomia. It sounds like you were better from your tick-borne illness, but you ha- you now were dealing with damage from all of the conditions you had. And I think it's hard for people to identify what is potentially still persistent infection or persistent tick-borne illness and what is based on something that could be damaged as a result of the tick-borne illnesses. So if you could just, you, you know, just, just at a high level, list the three names of the degenerative nervous system disorders that you had, so our listeners can explore with their doctors if they think that they might be suffering from damage from Lyme disease versus, you know, actually a persistent infection from a tick-borne illness. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, somebody can have active tick-borne infections or any type of active pathogen infection, right? Um, not just from tick-borne diseases, and they could um, trigger these other diseases and cause damage in parallel, and then you can be, they can be contributing to the decline of the patient that has these infections. And again, we see this with COVID with, you know, that COVID is uh, triggering dysautonomy on patients and other types of nerve damage that we're seeing now. So as far as my case goes with the, uh, because they are different symptom sets for the small fiber neuropathy and dysautonomia, um, I get a lot of burning and tingling in my limbs, my fingers, my feet, my legs, my arms. It doesn't stop. It's persistent. It feels like, you know, those, like when your arm is asleep or something's asleep and you have all that tingling, like ants crawling, it's persistent. It happens all the time. The severity may change. Sometimes it's like the volume is really high on it. And I have a lot of intense tingling versus something that might be more low lying, but it's always there even right now as I'm speaking. Um, and also I get, um, I have intolerance, um, when I stand up. So I, my blood pressure, um, can drop my heart rate increases. So I get palpitations, I can get dizzy and I have low stamina. So I can stand up for a long period of time. That's from dysautonomia, very similar to symptoms of POTS. However, I don't have POTS. There are different types of dysautonomia and my symptoms can happen even when I'm in bed. I can have my heart rate um, spike up to 150 doing nothing at all. Um, my, my blood pressure can get into hypertension doing nothing at all. I don't have to stand up for my blood pressure to rise or drop. Um, also, uh, after I eat meals, I get what's called postprandial hypertension. And, um, and so I, 
I can get really low blood pressure and um, heart rate and feel really dizzy and weak. Like I just have to lay my head down on the table. Um, and because I have dysautonomia, I also get uh, and have the nerve damage. I have gastroparesis. Um, and that's and that's part of all of the nerve damage that I have as well. So I have to eat my meals. And first of all, for the postprandial hypotension, I have to eat small meals anyways. But because of gastroparesis, it's a slow motility of the gastric system. And, and I have to eat small meals, um, just so the food can digest because my food doesn't digest at a, at a normal rate. So first of all, I'm never hungry. I eat on a schedule. So I, because I know I need to eat and, um, and I also have to do things like make smoothies with the Miralax to make sure, you know, things are going I'm specifically seen by a gastro inter, um, in, uh, internist, uh, doctor, GI doctor for that. Um, so I have many different specialists that help me manage the damage done. And, um, and yeah, so like, uh, patients could be experiencing these secondary diseases and not understand that those are in itself clinical diagnose diagnoses and that there are diagnostic tests to test for this. Like I had to go through, um, through a very specific test to be diagnosed with gastroparesis. Um, I had to go to a nuclear medicine hospital and, uh, and eat a radioactive egg sandwich. And then they scan to see how fast that food is going through your system every hour or two. So all of these things are done with very specific diagnostic tests and patients um, should advocate for themselves. Uh, if their doctors aren't sending them to specialists uh, to monitor what's happening specifically in those systems. Like if they're having neurological symptoms of tingling and burning and they're not seeing a neurologist or they're having issues in their gastric system and not seeing a GI doctor, um, you know, advocate and say, I want to go to this doctor. I think that I should be seen for this or tested for this because those things in, its, in themselves are diagnoses, they could happen on their own without tick-borne disease. They could happen because of tick-borne disease. You could have them together with tick-borne disease. And, um, and those things take different treatment paths. And, and it just, it just, it, they need to be monitored and they need to be put in someone's medical file. So other clinicians know the whole scope of damage that's happening to these patients. So I just want to just do a high level overview. So dysautonomia is different than POTS because it can happen while lying down in addition to standing up. And POTS is primarily when you're standing up, you have a fluctuation of blood pressure and heart rate, which could be, you know, a drop or a spike essentially, right? It could be either or, I think. And, right. and with dysautonomia, it can happen even just laying down in bed, you can have these spikes. Well, POTS is a form of dysautonomia. Dysautonomia has many types of, uh, of dysautonomic diseases or disorders under the umbrella of dysautonomia. I have a general form of dysautonomia. There's some dysautonomia types that are hereditary. Um, some like POTS, uh, you know, there uh, is only happens when a patient is standing up for, um, for that, um, uh, for that intolerance of postural intolerance. Uh, and then, um, and then there's patients that can have the symptoms regardless of what's happening. So there's a a variety of different types of dysautonomia and POTS is one of them. So, so how do you get tested for dysautonomia? 
Uh, well, you have to see a neurologist who specializes in dysautonomia. And in my case, I, um, I'm in Maine, but I travel to Boston, which is just an hour and a half away. Um, you know, I have a referral to see this doctor, my insurance pays for everything. Um, and I go and I, um, I, I initially I saw this doctor, he ran a bunch of tests. Um, he is the one who first indicated that I should be on IVIG. I have several neurologists in Portland who help manage my case locally uh, for CIDP. They defer to my Boston neurologist for dysautonomia, but the ones here actually treat me um, and order the IVIG for me because they're local. So if I have um, you know, any issues with it, I just write them. Um, so they all work together as a team. It's a big team effort, but you do have to see a neurologist um, um, and hopefully a neurologist that know has the testing equipment because it's very specific equipment. Although even if they don't have equipment in their office, you can see a neurologist. Uh, most neurologists can do a nerve biopsy. Um, so they can do some nerve biopsies to see if you have small fiber neuropathy right in their office. Adina, you mentioned a specific test to get diagnosed with dysautonomia. What exactly is this test and how is it performed? Um, well, the tilt table uh, is one of the tests and it's uh, very, um, I guess there's no other name for it. It's a tilt table. They, they strap you in on a table and they tilt you at a certain degree and they monitor your heart rate and blood pressure. You're hooked up to a bunch of machines. Uh, so they see the difference of you lying down versus, um, you know, being horizontal versus being vertical. Um, also, they test for your sweat output. So for me, for instance, my sweat gland nerves are damaged through all of my nervous system is damaged in my ear canals. I have hypoacusis, hyperacusis and, um, and tinnitus, like all the time I have ringing in my ears. And I've had testing for that through audiologists to show my nerve are damaged in, in my ear canal. Um, but for my sweat glands, um, they have showed through this uh, specific testing, I don't know the name of it, but they sweat, they test your sweat output. And um, I don't, my sweat gland nerves are damaged. So I don't sweat, which also makes it difficult for me to um, have temperature control. So when it gets really hot, I feel faint or can pass out. So I have to stay cool, which is what I love about Maine. Um, I am so glad to be away from the insufferable heat of Miami and to be in the cooler weather of, uh, of Maine. So they do the sweat gland test. They also um, have some kind of um, mechanic device that they put on your head that tests um, some kind of like uh, oxygen or um, carbon dioxide input output um, of your brain through this whole process as well. They do um, a breath test to check um, and you have to breathe through a tube really hard. Um, it's almost like what a pulmonologist would do, but sort of different because they're monitoring your blood pressure and your heart um, from your breathing output. Um, so they're testing a lot of these different um, aspects of your heart rate, your blood pressure, your nervous system, your sweat output, all of these different things. And, and also while you're horizontal and vertical. So how are you managing now? So obviously, well, I guess before I even ask that question, I do want to ask, you know, it's, it's such a controversial topic. Can you ever fully eradicate tick-borne illness once you get to the late stage and you, it took you so long to get diagnosed? And you made a statement that you feel that you've basically are gotten rid of all your tick-borne illnesses. So do you think that they're fully gone or eradicated from your body? Or do you think that they're just there and you're now managing them because you treated them so, so well with all the, the treatments you got through this doctor in Maine? 
I think it is controversial about um, if they can be treated or not. And I do believe they can be cured, but you can be left sick for the rest of your life. You can have, um, you know, this, this like long haul line, right. Or long haul, haul like COVID. Um, you just, you just remain sick. You never become better because of what the infectious agents has done. And it's, and again, it's not just with tick-borne disease or with COVID. Um, you know, we see this with tuberculosis and other types of infectious agents. You can have long haul symptoms that remain long after you're sick. And, um, in my case, I, consider myself in poor health. Um, most of my energy, uh, you know, is I work from bed, but most of my energy is, is focused very specifically on nonprofit, on my nonprofit work. And, um, and there's not much else of me to give, uh, because, um, you know, treatments, uh, they're exhausting and going to the doctors, it's exhausting. All of these things are exhausting for a patient. And I just want, patients who are listening to know um, that it's, it is possible, I believe, to, to get rid of your tick-borne diseases, but what may be uh, keeping a patient sick could be these secondary issues or these newly triggered diseases that are being undiagnosed if the doctors aren't testing for them. You need these very specific diagnostic tests to know what's happening. And it sucks. <laughs> it really sucks because I want to be better. I, I fully believe my tick diseases are gone because I don't have the seizures anymore. I, I, I know what day it is. I, I can, I can read a paragraph and retain it. Um, these things are very different than what they once were. And, and, and just to note, cause it's not something I mentioned earlier. I had another spinal tap in 2018 and I had biomarkers of an Alzheimer patient and a brain injury patient. I had high S100B and high myelin basic protein. And so it, again, it showed that I had damage done. That's, you know, that it's there and, and my nervous system is damaged is there. It's proven through these diagnostic tests. And I don't think that I'm ever going to get better from these things. Well, I think Adina, you're, being a little too hard on yourself as far as what you're giving back to the world today. I mean, you're running Lyme TV. It's known around the globe, frankly, and the impact you're having in the Lyme community is, is amazing. So talk to us about the work that you're doing with Lyme TV and really when did the first thought of developing this not-for-profit come into your mind and how did you bring it to fruition? Well, I got really angry at a doctor <laughs> and I looked to my husband and I said, there's got to be some kind of a change. I, I know that there's wonderful organizations doing a lot of amazing work. But in, for me, in my small little world, I said, I have to do something to help change this because this doctor, most of my doctors have been amazing. And all of my specialists, although they don't know how to treat Lyme, they know about the damage done to Lyme. So there are good doctors out there. There are Lyme-friendly doctors, even if they're not fully Lyme literate, they understand and they can treat what they specialize in. And I have been lucky. But there's this one doctor in Maine who I actually brought to the Maine Medical State Review Board because they were so negligent and, um, and so dismissive and so biased. And they got, they got uh, reprimanded. They have a letter. Uh, they weren't put on probation, maybe because they didn't really harm me, but 
what what they did was so reprehensible to the medical review board that they got a letter in their file that states your words were dangerous and that shouldn't happen and that letter is in their file for 10 years um and it's and it's i i believe it can be searched for publicly so if they get another complaint you know maybe they'll then be on probation but i got so upset and i said something has to change you know i i am working in public health and um and as a patient and as as what I feel a patient rights advocate, I've always advocated for human rights um, and now as a patient, patient rights. Um, and so it upset me so much. And I said, I wanna do something about this. I wanna, I wanna help make this change. So I wanted to form an organization that easily compiled all of the most robust peer reviewed data on the topic in one place, easy for doctors to read. It's just, you know, here it is and patients and for patients to gather and bring to their doctors. So it's on our website, we have a doctor section, there's a plethora of excellent, uh, you know, peer reviewed research that's on there. Of course, not all research even if it's peer-reviewed, is excellent, or it may not have a solid conclusion, right? So we're very particular about, you know, what we put on the website, um, and we do a lot of reading through this research. Um, but that wasn't going to be enough. Just, just that alone wasn't enough. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, earlier, that education comes, um, you know, is best on the, in the long term with um, good retention, and, um, and uh, you know, involvement when people are entertained, right? So we decided that we wanted to have programs to prevent tick-borne diseases in the first place. So we, if, if somebody's listening who doesn't know, uh, Live TV is a public health 501c3 registered nonprofit. And our mission is to reduce the incidence of dangerous tick-borne diseases through prevention, education, and outreach. Uh, we're an all-volunteer team. Um, we're a diverse team of patients, advocates, and caregivers. Um, and so part of our programs include uh, free school health education for children so they do not get a tick bite or become you know they're they're tick literate tick disease literate and they know what to do if they get a tick bite and how to prevent a tick bite so we have these programs and we designed a curriculum um, that is fun and age appropriate for kids you want you want the students to pay attention and you want them to retain the information right so it has to be fun it can't be boring you know literature that uh, a, a teacher's just you know reading to the kids you you have to make it engaging and fun um we also have uh community outreach programs which include us reaching out to uh, the homeless community in portland because they sleep outside and they're at high risk for tick diseases so we provide them with free bug repellent and permethrin treated socks and tick education. Uh, during the pandemic, we haven't done any in-person health events. So we provide our community partners who work with the homeless communities here who are um, shelters and, and maybe like uh, clinics uh, that, that um, serve the homeless community. We provide the them with all of this stuff during the pandemic and they're doing direct distribution. Um, and then we also have our film projects, which we try to, um, you know, it was founded, Line TV was founded on the concept of educating through video and other visual media uh, to, re to reach a wider audience. Um, and of course our communication efforts use humor and engagement since we want people to retain the information better. Uh, so we have our PSA series, uh, which we try to 
have it be a little funny. Um, we have our TikTok series and then we have um, an informal dialogue series. And we also are filming a scientific documentary titled Lime Shifting the Paradigm um, that we're working on that is not funny. <laughs> it is uh, very scientifically focused and we hope that shifts the paradigm on Lyme disease education, just like um, through history, there's been many diseases that took a, a really large paradigm shift. Even after research was published, it took a paradigm shift for the medical community to accept that re research. So um, that's the goal of our film is to help educate on the latest, um, greatest science on, on Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. We just want to encourage everybody listening to go check out your website is limetv.org. There is so much powerful information on there and it's all peer reviewed and accurate information you can share with your friends, your family, and even your doctors. I mean, you have information all about just what is Lyme disease? How does the testing work? What are the symptoms and early diagnosis? You know, what are the dangers of late stage Lyme disease, cardiac Lyme, pregnancy and Lyme? And you also have a whole section for clinicians, which I think is really powerful because there are doctors out there who will say, I don't know much about Lyme disease. And the more resources like yours, Adina and Lyme TV, we can provide to our doctors who are open-minded and willing to learn, the more educated they can become and the more people they can help in mass. And I think it's really important that people go to your website, read to gain information personally, but also to share with their practitioners to gain even more knowledge to help even more people at large. So uh, talk to us though specifically about your Tick Jedi program. I know there's been a lot, a lot of talk about the Tick Jedi program. We actually um, helped, uh, helped moderate and host an event with Ali Mresco for the Advocacy Express group. And we interviewed some elected officials and we had Jennifer Hoffman on who talked all about the Tick Jedi program and what you're doing to help get education into schools so these young children can learn about ticks and the dangers of ticks and how to, and how to avoid getting as sick as you and I did, frankly, and understanding the real dangers of ticks. So talk to us about the Tick Jedi program and what inspired that program for you to really be so passionate about to bring across really the entire country. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I'm really excited about Tick Jedi. Uh, the concept stemmed from our school health education program, which is actually called Lime TV's Tick Jedi School Health Education Program. And we decided to write a bill um, that would ensure uh, that Tick education is presented in the mainstream K through 12 school systems in their health science curriculum. So I was like, you know, this schools, schools are not required to have this education. And, and each school that uses our program currently, um, they, you know, it's, it's at their discretion. So during the pandemic, we had created a cartoon of our curriculum. Um, so we could have a wider distribution. It's not very scalable to um, go to a school in person or even do Zoom calls one by one, even if we had a team of volunteers doing it. So we decided to create an interactive cartoon, which is a lot of fun um, for the students. And, um, and it could be distribu uh, distributed nationwide, worldwide. It's free uh, for schools, um, you know, youth organizations and camps. So we decided that, you know, hey, why don't we try to champion a bill um, on a state-by-state -state level that would ensure that schools are using not, not necessarily our program, but any evidence-based and evidence-informed tick-bite curriculum for the schools to learn because students should be learning 
um, the dangers of ticks, how to protect themselves, what to do if they get bitten, what to do afterwards, what to look for afterwards to know the clinical symptoms and signs. They're going to teach their parents this information and they're gonna grow up with the factual information about ticks and not with misconceptions that we actually widely hear at our health events from adults, right? So um, the Tick Jedi um, bill was, um, created and it's actually the acronym of JEDI is Juvenile Educational Defense Initiative. So we have our TIC Juvenile Educational Defense Initiative bill. And so far um, we have support in two state chambers and we started um, asking support from our peer organizations if they would like to get involved. And it has grown really big in a very short amount of time. It's only been about a month and we have, um, I believe like 10 coalition members so now we're called the Tick Jedi Coalition collectively, and our mission as a coalition is to champion the tick safety and prevention education and mainstream K-12 science curriculum. So children can live healthy and safer lives. It's, it's so important that we focus on the health of children. They're our future. Um, you know, when people are sick, it, it reduces... Um, GDP output, right? People become, out of, they're taken out of the workforce even as adults and also, uh, so it becomes an economical concern um, and also uh, costs of healthcare skyrocket when people have chronic illness and they're constantly in the medical system. And ticks are a public health issue. There is a public health crisis when it comes to ticks and with ecological changes and other factors, this trend is going to continue and everybody needs to know how dangerous ticks are. So we became a coalition um, that's an alliance of organizations, advocates and patients to champion the bill. And, um, and we're pretty excited about it. Well, Dina, if you don't know already know, we had spoken to Megan Bradshaw about a month ago and Rich and I have pledged the full support of Tick Bootcamp to support this initiative and join the coalition. So whatever we can do to help, we, we are here for you and we wanna see this succeed. And in fact, we had our, our one of our elected officials whom Rich and I know personally equate this to recycling, right? Because one of the things we do at, at, at the government level is we try to educate young children about recycling because they take that information home. They're like sponges. They take that information home and they tell their parents and their grandparents and their cousins and you know whoever they can talk to about what they've learned in school that day. And now that knowledge gets transmitted and more and more people recycle. And we've seen that work at the government level, and that's a very successful approach. And you're kind of modeling that to say, hey, look, we want to educate young children about Lyme disease and tick-borne illness, and they're going to go home and tell their parents and their grandparents and their cousins and their uncles. And who knows how many people's lives they're going to change by just sharing that information. Maybe somebody who has chronic Lyme and doesn't know it, or on the other side, prevent somebody from getting chronic Lyme because they're more aware about ticks, they're taking proper prevention steps, or possibly even detecting an early case of Lyme disease, right? So that's kind of the model I think you're taking here to get it at its origin and prevent these things from happening and spreading awareness with children. I mean, that, and that's a really, really great cause. So I do want to ask, because, you know, again, we are, are, are a happy contributor to the Tick Jedi program, but it's not just for Lyme groups like Lyme TV and Tick Bootcamp. It's also for individual advocates and people who just want to help in the community. So if somebody's listening and they want to help and they want to participate and they want to see what they can do to help the Tick Jedi program, how should they contact you? Where should they go to learn more to participate in this great coalition that you're building? 
That is a great question. Um, if they go to linetv.org um, on the page, we have our Tick Jedi Coalition page. There is a form that people can sign up to volunteer um, and the form will ask them about their professional background, uh, what skills uh, that they have. So we know exactly uh, what department that we would place this person in. And for our current needs, we would take a look and try to match them with our current needs. Uh, we have several departments that have already grown. This is a separate organization, the Lime TV now. Uh, we're in the process of forming our 501c4 um, versus a 501c3 as a public uh, charity organization. A C4 is a lobbying organization, so we'll have unlimited lobbying restrictions. It has a, a, a separate volunteer team and separate uh, board of directors than does Line TV. Um, so, but yeah, it, you know, we're working in tandem uh, because uh, we are spearheading the initiative, but it is a collective effort and we are stronger together. So the more people who want to volunteer and get involved and who are able to help and help champion uh, this bill in their state, we welcome everybody to come in and join and to reach out to us and just fill out the form on the website and we'll reach out to them. So I think the stronger, to, the stronger Together concept has really been played out through your entire journey, right? I mean, your entire life, you've realized that it's been, a te it's been teamwork to get you better. You mentioned you have a team of doctors that span across a couple of states, and that team of doctors together are helping you improve your health. And even before you got diagnosed, it was your husband, and it was, it was family support and friend support together that helped you get to where you are today, right? And you're taking what you've learned and carrying that concept forward now to the Tick Jedi program to be stronger together, to make real huge change in the Lyme community by taking all these groups and bringing us together to make, to have our voices be heard, you know, tenfold, right? So I, I also do want to challenge you on one thing because it's been bugging me the whole time that you mentioned earlier that you wanted to get better and you wanted to go travel and you wanted to go live somewhere else and, and move on with your career, but you couldn't because you, you're still sick. And I want to say that I think what you're doing now is far better than any other aspiration you have had because you are literally saving lives, right? Lime TV, the Take Jedi program, you are saving lives across the globe. And I understand that you had certain desires and, and hopes and dreams, but I think sometimes fate takes over. And if, you know, depending on your faith, if you believe in God, I think God kind of pushes you in a certain direction. And this is your destiny. I mean, clearly you are a very smart individual, Dina. You're able to bring together all these groups and you've made, already made such change in the community. And we can see you're going to be making so much more change in the near future. So what do you think about that? Do you still have, I guess, sorrow over your lost career trajectory, despite everything you're doing to help the community today? It took me many years to go through the grief of loss of the career that I wanted and uh, the loss of my health um, in some aspects. Uh, in some ways, I still grieve my health. Um, I don't think I grieve so much the tra trajectory of my career as I once did, um, because I see that um, we are making change in, in the public health sector. It's very important to me. Um, I am now doing my master in public health. Um, I am currently in a master of public health program. So I'll have my MPH and hopefully at some point my doctorate in public health as well. Uh, so this, while it did take me on a different path, it's still kind of still somewhat aligned of what I wanted to do. Um, I am still, you know, obviously doing project management and logistics and everything for the organization I founded instead of for another organization. Um, 
but the difference is I really hate talking about ticks and tick-borne diseases. Um, I have arachnophobia and uh, ticks are disgusting to me. So, you know, I guess every organization's goal should be to want to shut down, right? Like you want to solve that problem so you don't have to exist anymore. And at some point, I hope that Lime TV doesn't need to exist anymore. I hope that we get to a point where people know about the dangers. Um, it also becomes like a social, uh, social behavioral issue. Like people may know about the dangers, but still not take the precautions they need, right? People know um, that, you know, smoking causes lung cancer, but they still smoke. So there's, you know, it, it it's, it's not just the public health, um, challenge with tick-borne diseases. It's, it's on a variety of public health issues, but this is my path now because this is, this is something that's important to me. And I didn't know anything about ticks. I didn't know they were dangerous. And I am committed and dedicated for the rest of my life that as long as it takes that we as an organization and me personally, I'm just gonna continue marching forward on this mission to prevent tick-borne diseases. There's great organizations that fund science and have um, and have support groups and help patients and, and, and treatment grants, right? And, and we're focused on prevention. And it takes all of these organizations though together to try to help solve this problem. And there's been orgs that have been in existence for decades, um, you know, and 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 the problem just per, like ticks are a problem that's continuing to persist. So all of us, I think together. Um, with all of our different missions, you know, at some point, I hope we can solve this problem so we don't need to exist. So Dean, our final question before we conclude this podcast is if your husband walked in as soon as we finished recording and told you he was bitten on his leg by a tick, what would you do? Well, he would, he would know, you know, just as much as me on this, but I would tell, um, he would, or I would immediately remove the tick properly with fine tipped tweezers, never use oil or fire or Vaseline on a tick. You wanna remove the tick with fine tipped tweezers at the head of the tick. I'm, I would firmly and gently remove that tick. And I would save that tick and send it immediately to a tick testing lab because I'm gonna to wanna to know what pathogens that tick is infected with. And I would also, um, you know, uh, seek a prophylactic course of doxycycline, at least while we're waiting to know what pathogens that tick is infected with. It may not even have Lyme, right? It may, uh, the tick might have Babesia and then he'll have to switch medications. Um, you know, there could be a plethora of diseases that that tick can transmit, including multiple at once. So um, yeah, definitely remove the tick properly, save the tick, send it for testing. And, um, uh, you know, there there's a different consensus on this. There's, you know, uh, different people think differently on this, but as for our household, we would get on prophylactic medication. Adina, thank you so much for joining our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Adina Berkowitz. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Adina Berkowitz, please visit our Instagram page at Lime TV. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us on on the blueprint. Fourth, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. 
And finally, we thank you for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.